Welcome to Father Finney's podcast. This is the best a man can get, and today's man is certainly the best that many a man can get. I can certainly know that. He is the voice of whiskey. He is an alchemist. He is a uh, teacher of literature and composition. A master of whiskey for international drinks company Diageo. Have I said that right? Diageo? Diageo, yep. Okay. Former. I'm no longer with them. But, oh, yeah, okay. We can delete that plug for them then. That's fine. <laughs> uh, you are the uh, voice of whiskey, uh, a whiskey and event consulting company, which sounds exciting. You do menu development, mixology, spirits education and event marketing. You host exclusive events and give advice on product development, evaluation, product reviews, media presentations, etc. And I also notice within your, your uh, story that you have a whiskey and rum cocktail bar and food truck pod. Well, that is uh, an incredible little, uh, well, not little, a vast uh, activity of life. So welcome, Mr. Robert Sickler. Woohoo! It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes. Here are, first question for you, Mr. Sickler. What is in this glass? I need to know the name, the year, and uh, region. It's hard to uh, initiate the olfactory senses <laughs> via my uh, mic, but it appears to be a, uh, a luscious glass. Could be Barolo, could be Sangiovese, um, but I'm thinking by the hue. Wait, hold it up again. The hue? That could be my breath. Tempranillo. It's a Tempranillo. Okay. Yeah, that was bang on. <laughs> it's actually a, a four, well, in your currency, it's probably a $6 bottle of wine from our local supermarket. Um, but So it, what is it? It's uh, Cote de Rhone. Oh, uh, Cote de Rhone. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I almost just, said Burgundy just to fuck around, but hey. Okay. Well, you know your stuff. I went Spanish and Italian. <laughs> Excellent. So, um, how on earth did you wind up in a career that is probably every middle-aged man or elder man or younger man's dream type career? How did that occur? God, that's a great question. A lot of serendipitous moments, I th think, led to it. Um, I, as you indicated earlier, I got my start in the classroom. I graduated uh, to pursue English education and I was a classroom for approximately 10 years. And during the time that I was teaching, I was typically moonlighting as a um, bartender or a fine dining server in the evenings to supplement my income. Mm -hmm. And there was one summer between um, school sessions that a, a good friend of mine going all the way back to when I was 12 years old at summer camp, who we maintained our friendship over the years, was just begging me to apply to get into the wine and spirits industry from the, the distributor side. And uh, I had no interest in it. I, to me, it just seemed like, you know, a bunch of schleps running around begging people to buy whatever random shit was in their bag that they were tasked <laughs> to sell by, you know, some idiots and cubicles um, to get their golf trips, you know, of course, while the, while the sales rep just got a pat on the head for their due diligence. But which isn't altogether entirely false, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, he 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 clever. I don't know if it was cleverly. I, I think he was quite sincere in the way he was trying to motivate me. And he said, "Look, man, you know if 
if you believe in the product that you represent, then you're not necessarily selling it. You're sharing it with an account that could utilize it for their own advantages and their own profits. And they could turn their guests onto something that they would enjoy. And he was right. But of course, you know, part of the thing that I learned over my years working on that side of uh, the industry is that when you work with the large distributor houses, there's a lot of garbage that has to be sold. You know, they're, they're mm -hmm. bringing in a lot of stuff with limit, you know, for, for different reasons. I won't go into that. But so you do have some gems in the book that you can bring to people, but you also have a lot of mediocre swill. And I found that working with smaller distributor houses that coveted more boutique artisanal type brands is what resonated best with my ethos. And so while I was actually opening my cocktail bar, I had the opportunity to work with a place here in, in Colorado that, that does just that. They deal with only um, what I would call quality spirits. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a genuine pleasure to work with them. But I learned a great deal from working with the big guys as well. I mean, you know, th there's something of merit to obtain from all sides of the spectrum. But after doing that for a brief amount of time, I was very fortunate to get recruited uh, to become a brand ambassador for Diageo, i.e. a master of whiskey slash master of scotch. Originally, it was the masters of scotch. And there were 12 of us hired to represent this exemplary book of Scotch whiskey under the Diageo um, house, which was the, the House of Walker, Johnny Walker, Buchanan's, and the classic malts of Scotland, which uh, was comprised of uh, Dalwini from the Highlands and uh, Craganmore up in Speyside, Kalila and Lagavulin from Isla. You had Glenkinchy from the Lowlands. You had Oban from the West Coast Highlands, Talisker from the Isle of Skye, they later um, added Singleton and a couple other marks to the to the group, but that was a really really fine time uh, for the first few years doing um, ambassador work for that extraordinary portfolio. Sitting down with chefs, mm -hmm. tasting the whiskey with them, discussing what types of dishes we might want to pair with the whiskeys. In addition to that, encouraging the chefs to actually utilize the whiskey in the actual course themselves such as through cures, through marinades, through flambés, through reductions, pan sautés, all this lovely way of integrating the whiskey, not only as something to pair alongside the food, but actually in the food itself, which really, um, really kind of turned on the palates and the senses of the consumers that were involved in the dinners. And that was probably my favorite part because I'm all about the senses. And that, that, that was always the appeal to me much more than, Ooh, I made a sale. Ooh, you know, <laughs> like I never really gave, you know, the slightest concern about that. It was more turning people on to flavors. They, they never thought that they would enjoy and mm. overcoming the obstacles and the barriers that people had. Like, you know, I don't like scotch whiskey. It's too smoky. Ugh, you know, faults that's incorrect it's, it's not too smoky and and so one of the things that i would do is you know start them off with the lighter sweeter sweeter um heathery styles of scotch whiskey and then work into the more complex stuff and as you evolve their palate then you get them into the big smoky peaty um you know uh 
the the whiskeys from that have the more coastal attributes and and the people who have kind of a, a resistance to that heavy phenolic smoky seaweed iodine character when you give it to them alongside a fresh cracked oyster or you drizzle a little bit of that briny peaty whiskey over the fresh oyster and you lap it up together or you give them a nice piece of stilton or, or any other blue cheese alongside a big heavy rich regal smoky scotch whiskey like you know lagavulin or ardbeg sorry um, I'm, or... I'm dribbling at the moment if that if that looks a bit unsightly i do apologize <laughs> <laughs> no that that means i'm doing my job accurately wow. did you actually have like a big bag of like booze like a, like a doctor's briefcase of samples how, how did you carry all this stuff around i did and, and as a matter of fact i usually had two bags with me um oh. i'm kind of i was kind of infamous for that most most ambassadors would go about with you know a modest selection a, a wee assortment of yeah four or five bottles you know and Not i would show up with, exactly uh, but, but I would come with two, two whole, um, they're like, they're called wine bags and it fits usually about 12 bottles. And then you have side pockets that you could put another three in each. So okay. I always came prepared because you never know, there might be, you know, um, a buyer who's interested in just tasting one or two mm -hmm. and you might have an opportune moment where somebody wants you to put the whole spread out and throw it all against the wall and see what sticks. Huh. Did you ever have to go to customs with all that stuff or how did that work? Or did you just pick it up on your local place whenever you arrived? Uh, well, usually if you, if I never had to go overseas to do a presentation, oh, okay. um, fortunately, that would have made it a bit more, more challenging, at yeah. least a longer wait in customs. But um, I did fly across the country doing this. And a lot of times the markets that I would visit would pull these products from their own local sample budget. Mm -hmm. And they would have the product waiting for me. But there were times I did have to have like a giant military grade um, carrier bag that <laughs> I could put the bags in so they wouldn't break. And there was never an issue traveling back then, you yeah. know, in the States with this stuff at all. I presume you must have been incredibly flammable within that vehicle that you were traveling. <laughs> if they're lit uh it's certainly flammable <laughs> okay wow. fantastic um so in these travels um I, i'm assuming because at my age and at many of my listeners age when you've had a drink or two the day after can be quite painful or the or the following days now at my age it finds like three days can be quite the hangover period how did you cope in your industry to keep fresh or to um, handle that oh my god I can't face another drink today or were you or were you at some point slightly not maybe addicted to it but it didn't affect you you were sort of cold a bit like I don't want to use the term like a drug addict but you know when you're you're flat on it is that how you sure. get or do, or do you still get the hangover and do you still have to handle it well I, th I think there is something to be said for built-up tolerance uh, when you're used to nosing and tasting this stuff every single day, I do think you build somewhat of a resilience that your average, you know, person walking around out there doesn't possess. But mm. we always, we always preached moderation. We always preached responsible drinking. One of the things that I always would say is use your senses. Don't lose your senses. Okay. Um, <laughs> as a, as a way of, you know, promoting the, promoting the concept of, truly respecting and relishing the quality of distillate in front of you. You know, it's not the type of whiskey that I was selling to people was not 
some type of um, second rate crap that people just want to throw back uh, to achieve an objective, if you will. Yeah. You know, one of the things I always said about single malt whiskey, unlike some other spirits that I won't name, is um, instead of just taking you from destination A to B, it gives you scenery along the way. Okay. And, um, and part of that is just honoring and respecting the, the character and the complexity that is in the glass. And if, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to uh, bullshit you and pretend like I never overindulged. Everyone <laughs> that I know in this industry has overindulged at some point. But it helps um, sales by doing so. Oh, certainly. Yes, Most definitely. And um, for me, you know, I found, I found fairly quickly along the way that proper, um, proper consumption of food makes a profound difference. There's nothing worse than drinking high proof distillate on an empty stomach. I mean, it's, it's okay. just, it is complete idiocy and you will regret it. And uh, the other thing that I found was that if I would make a preliminary raw juice the night before that I would drink the night before and then drink when I woke up. And it was usually something like cucumber and kale and green apple and lime, um, sometimes carrots, sometimes beets. If I, if I would do that before I went to bed and then I would do it when I woke up the next morning, I was, I was perfectly fine to go wow. off and, and do my thing the next day. Um, but, you know, when, when you have to get up early next, because, you know, the, we, we did that a lot. You know, you'd work the market all day with a, with a distributor, um, visiting accounts, talking with, you know, bar managers, beverage directors, chefs, whatever, bartenders, doing trainings and education and sales. And then you go set up for an event that night and, you know, you're meeting with more people before the dinner. You host the dinner after the dinner. Oh, let's have drinks over at Joe's Bar to say thanks for bringing in these two products of yours. So next thing you know, you know, it's 12, 30, one o'clock at night uh, in the morning, I should say. And then you have to be up the next day to do a ride with again. And so at some point along the way, you have to learn when to say no. And there's also a stealthy act to pretending to be imbibing when in fact you're not. There were a lot of dinners that I would be attending where I would raise my glass and I would give a toast and I'd go to take a sip and what I took was literally like just enough to not not be a lying bastard and just get a, a little drop on my tongue where I was in fact tasting with everybody, but I wasn't consuming everything. Wow. Because for them, you know, they go out, this is a once every few months, maybe once a month experience for most consumers and they get a little crazy and they go for it and they're, they're, they're drinking everything that's in front of them. And I don't blame them. I would too, if I was paying that money, but this is stuff that I could drink at any given moment. So it's not like some novelty. So yeah. I, I, I tended to, I tended to not um, go as crazy as, as I might have had I been a younger lad when I got started. All oh, right. Okay. This was, did you, by any chance, have to drive between presentations or did you have a chauffeur? <laughs> Hell no. No, never, ever. That was, a, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we just don't do in this industry. And if you do, you're insane and you won't be in the industry very long. Um, right. Very important. To, and, and fortunately, uh, when I got started, Uber did not exist. But as of right now, Uber is just a gem as far as um you know accessibility and getting 
I remember I remember trying to call cabs and literally having to wait 30 minutes for them to show up. And I remember being in New York with actually my colleagues from the Masters of Whiskey um, several years ago when, when Uber had just started before a lot of people knew about it. And we were all lined up to go to some photo shoot. And one of our friends, uh, Jerry, uh, colleagues, Jerry said, hey, let, you know, let's go meet at so-and-so for lunch after this and, and then we'll go about our, our daily business. And the big question was, oh my God, well, there's 12 of us. How are we going to get over there in a cab? And he said, oh, don't worry. I've got a, a vehicle coming. And this big black SUV rolls up. I'm like, how in the hell did you manage that in two minutes? And he pulls out his phone. It's an app. It's Uber. And <laughs> that was my first introduction to Uber. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to change the game. This is brilliant. And yeah. so we got in and, you know, and I've been using them ever since as well as, uh, well, you know, sometimes I use other other um, apps, but Uber seems to be the most reliable for me. Got oh, yeah, right. In the subjects here, I noticed that one of your main interests, because I, I got to be honest, when I first saw you, uh, you did a, a little video introduction of yourself, and it was within thirty seconds that I had this, for for lack of a better phrase, a huge man crush. It was just like, oh my god, that guy is epic. The space you were in, like like you are now, surrounded by all this amazing. Um, history and and booze basically uh, your enthusiasm and your knowledge for it it was just incredible now in that intro you were also discussing your interests in in the subjects of mysticism and psychedelics did <laughs> did that begin before your whiskey thing or has that come as a result of it did it lead you to it what occurred there uh well i i was involved in mysticism or are involved curious about mysticism way before I got into the realm of refined spirits, uh, if you will, as well as psychedelics. I was doing psychedelics fairly young. Um, the first time, well, not really young. I was, I was 17 the first time I, mm. I took, um, a psychedelic, but it, it it certainly played a very crucial role in my young adulthood of expanding my consciousness, connecting deeper with certain authors that I had always revered and uh, also certain musicians, obviously. Um, and as a student of anthropology, which is, has been something I've been fascinated with since I was in, in high school, literally reading about um, initiation rituals of other cultures and, and different types of, um, you know, transitional stages into adulthood and how they do these rituals and how they, you know, how people um, solidify marriage in different cultures and all of this different types of topics fascinated me. So I had, I had this, this arsenal of experience in pursuing religious studies, pursuing anthropology, pursuing mysticism through, you know, a, a variety of different, um, uh, what's the word I would say, um, not, well, yeah, reading the works of different sages, if you will, and, and religious scholars and things of that nature. And so when I got into the whiskey, um, to be, to be quite truthful, regrettably, most of my most of my time when I was involved as a, as a brand ambassador in the whiskey world, it was very corporate. And I didn't really have a lot of opportunity to sit down and, and um, experience whiskey with fellow humans 
on a more deeper level. And that's kind of something that I look forward to doing more these days uh, <laughs> because, you know, it was a tight schedule and, and frankly, I wasn't getting paid to, um, to talk um, the connection of human hearts and souls over a dram. It was more like, you know, the, the deepest they wanted to get was I let's have a wee fireside chat and raise a glass. And, and, you know, it was all very superficial type, um, right. you know, engagement of the senses, if you will. But yeah, I, I would really, you know, one of the things that I'd really like to dig deeper into, because I've been to Scotland several times, I've been to Ireland um, as well. It's funny, you, when you said Ireland, you were Irish for a moment then. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would like to go and and rather than even step into a distillery, which will be very difficult for me to do, admittedly, I'd like to just go and connect with some of the the communities of people there that are really into Gaelic Celtic heritage and and spirituality and mysticism, which is something we never obviously had the chance to do. We're all about business, you know, going to the distilleries, seeing what they do. Um, and, and that's all meaningful and relevant. And, you know, I'm very grateful for that experience. But then after that, you know, you're out. It's, it's about, it's about educating you on the product and learning about it and then sending you back. Um, so yeah, that's something that I haven't really had the chance to tie together, but I think there's a, a, a definitive um, way to do so. And, and I don't think that overindulgence in whiskey is something that is um, connected with spirituality on any level. I think, like I said, using your senses, not losing your senses. If you use too much, it completely muddles you to the point where you're not able to really function. And, um, and, and you know, the worst thing is to not even remember what you consumed the night before. It, it seems yeah. like a waste. Because I tried to preach the, the, the whole, like, the notion that these whiskeys were sacraments. And, um, and I do, I do believe that. I mean, if you approach them with reverence and you have, you have the right amount, not too much, they're, they're magical. They really open up doors for connection and conversation with other people. And I don't know if it's the, obviously it's not the spirit itself, but it's the way that it, it reduces people's walls a little bit. It lets, mm. it lets um, certain people's, um, constructs that they've built up around them kind of loosen and 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 um fall by the wayside so that they're a little more prone to opening up and sharing and like i noticed even when i was an educator in the czech republic i taught air traffic controllers uh <laughs> conversational english oh, okay. and they loved yeah. they loved to meet at the pub after class and have a few beers because after two or three beers they felt a lot more comfortable practicing their English. And yeah. uh, that's something that I've noticed across the board with people is whenever they seem to have a few drinks in them, they're more prone to feeling comfortable speaking either their native language rattles off more comfortably if it's not something that they speak every day. Mm -hmm. Like my wife, for instance, who you know was raised as a Spanish speaker and she doesn't speak Spanish a lot, but if you give her a few drinks and we're in Puerto Rico, well, she starts rattling off like, you know, she never stopped. And and I noticed the same thing in, in you know, with my friends in Europe, you give them a few drinks, they're a lot more comfortable practicing and, and talking in English 
yeah. um, in, in other languages as well. So it loosens the, it loosens the human up a bit. And um, I think for that social lubrication, you know, it plays a role. Yeah, for sure. absolutely. Well, in your experience then in mysticism and in the beverage industry, would you or could you conclude that is gin really the devil's drink? Gin? Yeah. Oh, gin is brilliant. Uh, a well-made gin, that is. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of garbage gins out there um, that are, you know, utterly devoid of any type of compelling flavor and aroma. But there are also a world of stunning, stunning gins out there, and I, I think that uh, gin is a very untapped universe of opportunity and i i've seen more stunning gens come out in the last 10 years than i've seen in all my years in the in the industry mm. yeah i've and, noticed that over here in the uk it's it's also becoming it used to be a drink for the ladies uh but now it's you see a lot of men drinking it as well uh but weirdly well, enough yep. i think gin is actually cheaper than buying a pint of lager in many cases now probably easier to um to digest for some of us old fucks too. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love a good pint of beer, but my God, they're they're very heavy on me these days. I just I, I'm astonished at the amount that I could drink when I was in my twenties of, you know, limitless pints of beer. Now, yeah, I, I don't even really drink beer. Uh, maybe no. a bottle or a pint at most. But gin, you know, gin and a nice craft tonic, or uh, you know, you could drink several of those and feel great and and you and you, you know you're there like there's places on isla that are making beautiful gins with their local um, botanicals and there's like there's a place here uh in uh, in the states next door to colorado in new mexico saint george or not saint george that's another fine distiller in california but um cole keegan it's actually an englishman i think he's got a bit of irish heritage or something um and I think his name was Cole and one of his partners was Keegan or something. And so he started this distillery called Cole Keegan. And he makes a lovely whiskey that is smoked with uh, New Mexico mesquite to kind of take on like a, a peated Irish whiskey is what it really tastes like. Yeah. But he also does a beautiful gin using desert botanicals. Um, and so I really like it when a distiller creates a gin using botanicals that are indigenous to their local Tuar using their local flora fauna, etc. It really puts an interesting stamp on that beverage that's a lot more meaningful than just, you know, I, I mean, there are people who make great gins that they're sourcing their stuff from all over the world, and that's fine as well, but nothing compares to fresh botanicals. When you make a gin with dry botanicals, it never comes out tasting as fresh and vibrant as fresh botanicals ever. Yeah. How did you discover that you had the nose or palate for this? Because surely that would have been like a prerequisite for the job in the first place. It is imperative. I mean, if you if you don't have a good nose, you're going to do a lot of faking, and and people will notice, you know. Uh, but there are people that excel as a brand ambassador who have no palate whatsoever, who are able at building relationships. <laughs> Wow. And just able at, at sales techniques and um, being being confident and reliable and knowing everything there is to know about their product. But there's also people out there who um, excel well at having where people trust their palate. And I had the I had did have the 
the advantage that a lot of people believed in um, my impressions of, of certain distillates. And I don't know how it developed. I've, I've been fascinated by aromas and flavors since I was a very young kid. And uh, I would know certain things and just go crazy, um, fascinated, like by, by whatever, whatever it was inside that beverage or that food as well that gave it that interesting flavor. Like the first time I tasted green peppercorns in Thai food, unbelievable. Or the first time I tasted um, a dessert wine and learned about botrytis, you know, uh, oh my, what the hell gives it that funky unique- What is botrytis? I thought it was an illness. No, botrytis is a, um, it's, it's associated with a fungus that grows on grapes. Oh, okay. and and it gives dessert wines that really I don't it, it's very hard to describe it it's almost almost umami but it's not umami obviously because there's nothing that would give it that umami character but it's it's a it's a taste and, a, and an aroma that you just don't you're not normally accustomed to as a human and not something that I think we would typically instinctively consume in nature but when you do yeah. oh my god you know um but you know, like the first time I tried chai chai tea, it was just a, a startling revelation. Like, oh my, you know, because let's face it, standard tea, or Earl Grey tea with a little cream and sugar is, it's all right. It's not awe inspiring. Cream, but <laughs> I've never had cream in Earl Grey. You have cream in it. You haven't? Uh, no, I just have you, plain Earl Grey. Well, you. You guys put dairy in your uh, tea in, in England, don't you? Uh, in the regular tea, yeah, we put a little bit of milk, but things like the... Um... Okay, but you wouldn't put an Earl Grey because you really no, want it. No, Okay. Well, and I do like Earl Grey, and I like Earl Grey actually in culinary do, applications yeah. as well. But um, but just, say, you know, when you take ginger and nutmeg and clove and cinnamon and black pepper and even a little saffron I like to do with my chai, but you put that into a tea, you're just... It, it's... I don't know what it is, man. I'm just, I could be, I could be really happy owning an insanely dope spice shop. I would be in heaven doing such a thing. Yeah. Um, I've just always been about spice. I love heat. Um, I've been in the hot peppers since I was a kid. Um, in fact, I was two years old and um, I was crawling behind my father's lazy boy chair and chewed on the wire and it almost killed me. I it burned the living daylights out of my um, my lip. And the doctors, you know, my parents were asking them, what can we not give him? Can we not feed him this, that, and the other? And they knew that I liked hot peppers. And the doctor said, under no circumstances can he have hot peppers. And uh, my parents told me that I was asking for peppers and they wouldn't give it to me. And I was throwing this like temper tantrum and my dad finally said, God damn it, give him a pepper because he, <laughs> he wanted it to hurt me. So I shut up. Thanks, dad. Um, and so they did. And I don't know if, if I didn't care and I ate through the heat because uh, the, the pain didn't bother me or if I actually didn't have any pain because the burn destroyed my nerve endings. I don't know what, but mm. my parents always laughed because I was happy. I was just happy as a lark gobbling those peppers with my burnt ass lip. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was just out in my garden a few moments ago. I've got uh, ghost peppers growing, Trinidad scorpions. I've got Thai chilies. I've got uh, 
habaneros and I've got jalapenos. Ah, jalapenos. I know that's pretty basic gradient to know on the pepper thing, but as soon as I eat a jalapeno, I start hiccuping. Is that a normal thing or or, or not? I, it just, uh, jalapenos are weird because some of them taste almost as innocuous as a standard green pepper, hmm. but then you get the other one that it can, it can really give you a wallop. Um, okay. You know, it, it depends. It, it, it all depends on, I don't know, man. I don't really know the science of why some jalapenos are, it's the same thing with those little shishito peppers, the Japanese shishitos. I don't know if those are big over in the UK, but in yeah. America, it's like a major trend. And um, the funny thing is most of them are very mild, but there's always a couple in the batch that actually have a real kick to them. Ooh. And uh, those are, those are probably the ones that um, cause people to react. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, in your, in the trade that you've worked in, I noticed the way you're describing things. Does a background in literature and poetry help? Because that short, does that help you describe? Is that what got you an advantage as well? Because if, if you only had like an 800 word vo vocabulary, I don't see how you could actually express alcohol to people. Do you think that helped? Oh, for certain. Yes. Yes. I think that having, I think that having, you know, a relatively diverse vocabulary helps, uh, you can, you can fake it a little bit. If you're one of these people that can just literally read bullet points and tasting notes and memorize everything. And that's what some people have to do who, who uh, don't have the, you know, the sensory gifts that, that some others possess and, um, and who are lacking, uh, you know, I don't know how to put it in the proper context, but the, um, the, People who, who who don't like to elaborate using um, lofty lofty language, you know, you can memorize the sensory notes that others have provided, yeah, and then you can deliver them fairly effectively without any problem. And I've seen a lot of people do it and do it very well. And you know, like I've seen people who I might be able to describe things really well, but I know people who can present far more effectively than I. And I know people, some people who can tell stories more effectively than I. Everybody comes with their own strengths and their own weaknesses as, as uh, brand, referring to the brand ambassador world anyway, as yeah. brand ambassadors. And, you know, I had my strengths and I had my weaknesses as did all of my colleagues. We all came with our own unique background. And I think a lot of us were chefs and that really helped uh, them with, with their angle and other people were actors mm -hmm. and that really helped them with, you know, commanding an audience and, and being able to think on their toes and be improvisational. And then of course you had people who came from bartending that brought their, their per interpersonal skills and their ability to recommend uh, drinks, cocktails that these particular brands could work well with. And mm -hmm. then you also had people who came from distributor houses, salespeople who, you know, we're able to um, bring the skills that are required for success in the marketplace as a sales rep and apply them to the ambassador world. And I, th and I think the best people have the ability to kind of bring a little bit of all that in. Yeah. I think the more background you have, the more effective you are in that, in that world. Absolutely. In that world that you, you work in, do you see a lot of midlife crisis or a lot of men 
is that the tipping point for them if if they're having a crisis of whatever in their life does that environment sort of accelerate it or amplify it because i know a lot of people who work in the well maybe not right now today in the current climbs but a lot of people work in the entertainment and um, alcohol industries is it, is it a dangerous place to be when you're hitting the midlife crisis well if you have even the slightest problem with utilizing alcohol as a coping mechanism it is a very dangerous arena to be in i would say um i don't think somebody who has a substance problem would find it um advantageous to be in in this industry now there are people who who do possess such uh issues and they've overcome them and they do very well i mean i've I used to be fascinated when I was a brand ambassador and I'd go into uh, accounts to present whiskey to the owner and the owner would tell me, um, no, I, I can't. Um, I would love to taste those whiskeys, but I, I've already had my share to last a <laughs> lifetime. I don't, I don't go there anymore. And I was always perplexed. Um, wow, these guys own this amazing bar with all these amazing assortment of whiskeys and they don't touch any of them. How bizarre is that? But now as a bar owner, I certainly understand because, and at my age, I guess, you know, I, I understand more than ever, but do, so I've seen bartenders who are sober and, and it's weird because, you know, there's a lot of bartenders who say, you can't bartend if you're not sober, bro. You know, you have to taste. Yeah. That's not true. There are, if you know what flavors you're working with and you've bartended for a long time, you can go on your senses. I mean, do you have to occasionally take a tiny, just to put it on your tongue, just to see if it's balanced occasionally? Yes, but let's face it, that's not drinking. If you, if you think it is, you're way too of a fucking Puritan. Um, but I've, I've seen people pull it off and they've done it successfully. And, uh, and, I, and I applaud them because it, it cannot be easy. Um, I don't have an addiction problem. I've never have, I've never craved alcohol. Um, for me, the only time that I, you know, I'm not, that's one thing where you notice when somebody does have a drinking problem, I feel is when they drink, when they're depressed or they drink when they're stressed or they drink when they're sad. Right. Um, for me, that's the last thing I want under those circumstances. For me, I want to drink when I'm in good company, um, when I, I'm relaxed and I want to, um, I want to celebrate something, you know, let's, let's have a few drinks and, and uh engage our senses if you will do you find that so... do you find like you're a polarity now your point of view there to me stands out as a complete polarity to the predominant society where normally the drink is the escapism and it's not when they're comfortable with friends it's not when they're celebrating it's that they're trying to get away and and it's it seems to be the opposite in the predominance of society I don't know regrettably um regrettably i would agree i mean if you see the sales of spirits during this whole covid debacle they're through the richter scale and yeah. it's certainly being used for coping granted i i know for a fact there are people that are just saying hey we're off work let's <laughs> let's get some wine and fucking party you know yeah. and good on them you know enjoy yourself like don't sit around in misery yeah um, you know, get productive or have fun, but don't, don't sit around and, and, and allow this to 
agonize and torment your soul and put you in a dark place. And if alcohol, alcohol is a depressant. I love it and, and, and I applaud its application across the board in many ways, but it is a depressant. And if you're extremely depressed and you're in a dark place, I would highly suggest that it's the last thing that you put into your body. Um, what, but what that's would, what would you recommend that people drink if they were in that situation? I would say drink um, some fresh pressed raw juice. Um, I would say drink some uh, very clean, flavorful smoothies, um, some really beautiful, elegant, organic single estate teas. There's so many ways that you can enjoy tea, hot, iced, and in cocktails like mocktails, as we say in the industry, where you yeah. you create a, a, a cocktail that's free of alcohol. Um, because the last thing you want to do under stress is um, stress your body even more. Mm. And um, yeah, I, 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 I'm really, and isn't it bizarre that they say, um, you know, they're, they're doing all these moronic little draconian um, stunts that they say are to protect, protect people. But I think it's fairly clear to anybody with the slightest degree of common sense that the last thing our government gives a shit about doing is protecting our health. Yes. <laughs> I mean, well, yes. we could I've, do a whole episode on that alone. Yeah, well, no, we have that in the UK. It's like at the moment you, you're you asked to wear a mask when you're going into a supermarket. However, when you're in the supermarket, you can buy cigarettes full of 20-odd chemicals that will kill you. You can buy a ludicrous amount of alcohol and drink it straight away. You can... So, most of the supermarket contents will kill you eventually. Um, but no, you wear a mask because the government cares. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But everything else that the government doesn't care about really is taxed. Yes. Um, how, how does taxation work over there? Does it does it harm the drinks industry? Because over here it seems to be killing the community spirit of drinks. It's it's forcing everyone into their houses to drink as opposed to going to the pub and gathering. Is it the same in America? Our our tax system is nowhere nearly as deplorable as it is over there. Um, but the government still makes their money, believe me, but um, the UK has some pretty high taxes on spirits. Yes. Like yeah. you can buy Scotch whiskey in the States for less money than you can in Scotland. <laughs> so the, the only, the only Scotch whiskey that I purchase when I'm in Scotland is expressions that are not available in the States right. because otherwise, you know, why would you and go and going through the, you know, the, um, the rigmarole of getting back across the pond in your luggage and dealing with custom. It's just not worth it. So yeah. I'd rather just get the stuff that I know I can absolutely cannot get over here and um, go that direction. Cool. Now you're doing a podcast. Um, tell us a little bit about that because is it on the subject of um, the, is it predominantly whiskey or is it all drinks? It's all drinks. Um, it's, it's called raise a glass. And the premise is the exploration of artisanal beverages. So obviously small scale whiskey will absolutely be a component. All the years that I've spent in the whiskey industry have put me into contact with some great people from the folks who are the distillers to the people who are the importers to the people who are the brand ambassadors. And so I definitely plan on having a lot of those folks on the show. Uh, but in recent years, I have fallen head over heels with Mascal and Raisia and Sotol and Bacanora, which are these 
extraordinary unique distillates from Mexico that have been tragically overlooked for many, many years while everyone's obsessed with tequila. And there are some good tequilas out there, but the majority of tequila anymore is, I'm not even going to describe it. Um, I, I won't even go there because it's not, it's not even worth it. Um, but, um, you know, I have a big love of big, robust rum as well. So we'll be dealing with uh, Jamaican pot still rum and uh, also rum agricole from Martinique and Barbancourt from Haiti, which is all raw cane like, like um, rum agricole, but slightly different. And Claren, which is a, a version of rum produced in Haiti that's very similar to moonshine in that it's done in oh. very tiny, tiny villages out in the middle of nowhere with open air fermentation and all natural yeast from the surrounding um, area. Ridiculously amazing stuff. But in addition to spirits, obviously some fermented delicacies that are all you know, artisanal in nature, and also actual things that are truly uh, healthy for one's constitution. So yeah. we'll be talking about a lot of that as well, because it's, it's kind of been a, a strange walk for me um, all these years. I've, I'm, a lot of my colleagues used to laugh at me waking up and drinking raw juice in the morning um, until they started trying it themselves and realizing how it made them feel better. And then they would oftentimes follow suit. Um, but I've always been kind of a walking contradiction. I'm, a lot of people think they know me and they don't really know me. Um, they, you know, I have people who think that I'm this raging whiskey guy that all I live and breathe is whiskey. And, you know, I, at one point that's true. <laughs> there was a point where I probably did live and breathe Scotch whiskey and, uh, and I'll always covet it, um, in, it for the rest of my life as, as, as I feel, and I'm quite certain, as a matter of fact, that it's the most complex um, of any of the whiskeys created in the world. No, nothing comes close to it, except perhaps the countries that attempt to replicate that style. You know, <laughs> India has their Amrut, and they do some decent single malts, and France does some quite lovely single malts these days, and even England is doing some single malt whiskey, and it's quite respectable. And uh, of course, <laughs> Ireland, you know, has been making some fine single malt whiskey. And in the States, we've got some people making um, very nice single malts as well. But still, they're in the Japanese, of course, you know, they're, they're probably the first country in the world that started imitating um, the way that the Scots make whiskey. And I think they, they did a really fine job of kind of replicating the Highland style. And, um, but anyway, back to back to whiskey, um, or, or what? No, I'm sorry. You were asking, you what was the original question? I'm sorry. Yeah, basically, about what, what you're going to be talking about on your podcast for the uh, the main material, the main content. Yeah, yeah. So any any artisanal beverages. Well, it, it doesn't matter whether they're they're clear or they're you know barrel aged or or whether they're alcohol or non-alcohol. I just I'm I'm interested with quality beverages in in and I'm interested in the people who make them and why they chose that path and what inspired them to go in the direction they went. And I'm also, um, I'm also a fan of sitting, this whole Zoom situation is not, is not my preferred medium for um, conversing with people at all. I, the original desire for this 
podcast, Raise a Glass, was to meet with people face-to-face, heart-to-heart, soul-to-soul, and share a beverage to, to literally start the podcast, tell me what they're drinking, I'll tell them what I'm drinking, and then we kind of give some props and bullet points on each of the products that we respect and we're trying to give some you know, visibility to a broader audience on the, on the waves too. And then get into some genuine bona fide conversation with people who, who I'm interested in, who I think have a really nice story that they can bring to the table. And, and, um, and now doing it this way, it's definitely a lesser version. It's, it's, it's nowhere close, but it's better than nothing. And I think yeah. we as human beings at this point need to be connected more than ever because I truly believe that however you want to describe whether it's deep state or the new world order <laughs> or whatever terms people opt for. I just call it the human herd handlers. Um, <laughs> they want us separated. They want us divided. Yeah. It is absolutely obvious that they want to crush all areas of social engagement. Yeah. Uh, and there seems to be a deliberate fundamental attempt to suck the humanity out of us and and part of my effort of doing the podcast is just a nice little um, uh, a finger to them um, yeah. and uh, to still practice the the um, the notion of engaging with my with my friends and my neighbors and my colleagues and people who I revere as human beings. I, I 100% agree and I wish you all the success on that. It's, a, it's, it's an epic journey and, and I think uh, your subject matter is just infinite and uh, I think your audience could be pretty much infinite um, and, and you're right uh, recent times have shown that whoever is in charge or whoever is controlling I don't think is human because what's being put upon society and upon our species is not humane um, yeah. so I think they've revealed whoever it is or whatever it is that's revealed itself is definitely not a human force um, but we have our alcohol and we have our spirits, so <laughs> we can deal with it. I'm sure we can. Um, yeah, I would say that anybody who lacks empathy is not worthy of being called human. Yeah. You know, em empathy is definitely, it's a human trait. In fact, you know, I've even, I've seen animals that possess um, emotions and empathy toward other creatures uh, of their own species as well as others. So the fact that we consider ourselves so evolved, yet we're completely indifferent to some of the inconceivable horrors that are taking place um, to people across the planet is, mm -hmm. it, it is um, infuriating. And I do think we're reaching, we're reaching a point where humanity is either gonna have to stand up or they're going to have to surrender like a bunch of herd animals being led straight to slaughter. And I do have a great deal of concern for how the majority of them will react because they are, they are swallowing a lot, of, um, a lot of the nonsense that's being propagated hook, line, and sinker, utterly devoid of critical thinking skills, believing anything and everything that they see on a t TV. Hmm. Like literally the TV is their shepherd. And if an epidemiologist or a virologist or immunologist 
or a biologist or a chemist produces a work in a medical journal or any other field of uh, publishing that questions one little twerp that they see 24 hours a day on their TV screen, well, that can't be valid. Well, what makes one person's advice valid? Is it that he's been bought and paid for and he's not independent, but actually is part of whatever agenda is being propagated? Or is it something else? Do tell me, because I'd really <laughs> like to know the rationality you have. And they all cackle like little hyenas and they don't really stop to think that they're just, it, it reminds me of like when I was a kid and I would see on National Geographic, uh, a, a, a tribe of chimpanzees and they would see a baboon and the baboon would be literally torn to pieces by the chimpanzees and the chimpanzees would all jump up and down and shriek like go fucking crazy with delight like raw savage primal delight at seeing this baboon torn to pieces and of course part of that is they intrinsically know baboons are fuckers and are dangerous <laughs> and they want to get the hell rid of them which i get but it's just that that gleeful that i I, I really have always had an issue with people who can only formulate their own opinion based on what everyone else around them is telling them to think. And it's, it's a very, and it's by a definition. Very that's not an own opinion though, is it? That's, that's a herd opinion. That's, it's a collective opinion. It's not actually their opinion. Correct. Correct. Yeah. It's repeating. Yeah. Repeating, um, parroting and, um, yeah, but you know, the, I'd love to have a conversation with you down the road um, that where we go a little deeper on this because um, I think it needs to be discussed um, yeah. in, in a lot more, uh, a lot more pervasive questioning of the machine and, um, and people need to come together and uh, people need to listen to each other too. And that's, that's yet another problem is they've successfully divided people into camps and everybody resides in their own echo chamber and <laughs> and the more that people start um barking at someone for having an idea that they don't like that doesn't cause the person to change their mind it just causes them to no longer engage with that person yeah. and i don't understand why people don't see that but people seem to think that they have this fundamental need to belong and a fundamental need for validation from their, their fellow herd animals. And if any herd animal dares to step outside of that little circle, oh my God, are they meant with such a disdain. Yeah. It, it's, it's hilarious. It's sad, but it but is what it is. There is a positive to all that, though, in the fact that when individual members of the flock are sort of booted out for their weird states of observation at least those people are now through the internet and whatnot they're gravitating towards each other so that flock in itself is growing a healthy herd but not herd as in a agreed thought but more a case of there are a lot of people like us gathering together we don't we have different opinions but we can tolerate each other's opinions and we can work with each other's opinions and i think that's what makes our flock if it were 
quite a unique and a positive thing for our future. A pack. A pack. A pack. <laughs> yes, a pack. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we can operate individually, but also as a pack. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you very much for tonight, Robert. It has been absolutely brilliant. I've always been looking forward to having a good chat with you. And I think this may just be one of our first conversations. I do want to have a face-to-face. And I Certainly. do want to smell and and experience that whole display that's behind you. Uh, obviously, I won't, <laughs> I won't be doing all of it. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, well, but, uh, one of these days, one of these days, perhaps um, I can fly over to Scotland, and you can come up and join me. Oh yeah. And we'll have a bonfire on the beach somewhere on Isla, and we'll raise a glass there and do a an episode. Yeah, well, now you're doing it as a podcast. I, I'm presuming under American laws, it's all tax deductible now, isn't it? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> hey, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I've got a good account. Sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for tonight. Uh, that was Robert thank Sickler. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>